and welcome to today's Daily Crypto Take. Today is Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. Let's take a look at today's charts. At number one, BTC, $56,292.22, down 1.27%. Ethereum, number two, $3,518.40, up 0.35%. Binance Coin, number three, $455.24, up 11 0.81%. Cardano at number four, $2.14, down 0.06%. Tether at number five, 99 cents. XRP at number six, $1.11, down 0.34%. Solana at number seven, $153.25, up 6.82%. Polkadot number eight, $35.63, up 5.69%. Number nine, USD coin, 99 cents. And last but not least, Dogecoin, number 10, 22 cents, up 0.18%. Let's take a look at the crypto fear and greed index. Extreme fear can be a sign that investors are too worried. That could be a buying opportunity. And when investors are getting too greedy, that means the market is due for a correction. So we got extreme greed at 78. Yesterday was greed at 71. Last week was greed at 59. And fear was last month at 32. Let's take a look at our five articles today. Article one is the death and birth of technological revolutions. Article two, Coinbase announces NFT waitlist following lead of rivals Binance and FTX. Article three, this unexpected factor can take Bitcoin to $500,000 next year. Article four, Almost 40% of all SHIB tokens are now in public hands. And last but not least, the main topic today is, if you invested $100 in Bitcoin in 2011, this is how much you'd have now. So before we get into the articles, I just want to say thank you so much to all my supporters. I've been looking at the analytics on the podcast. And if you're listening in from Apple, Spotify, or Google, thank you so much. I've been seeing a lot of people from Canada, America, from Mexico as well, also from the European countries like UK, also France, Germany, and also the people in Asia, like in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and also China and Japan. So thank you so much for all your support and help. And if you're watching in the YouTube space, please like, share, and subscribe. So let's get into it. Article number one is the death and birth of technological revolutions. What was especially remarkable about Carlota Perez's technological revolutions and financial capital was its timing. 2002 was the middle of the cold winter that followed the dot-com bubble. And here was Perez arguing that the IT revolution and the internet were not in fact dead ideas, but in the middle of a natural transition to a new global and golden age. Perez's thesis was based on over 200 years of history and the pattern she identified in four previous technological revolutions. The Industrial Revolution began in Great Britain in 1771 with the opening of Arkwright's Mill in Cromford. The age of steam and railways began in the United Kingdom in 1829 with the test of the rocket steam engine for the Liverpool-Manchester Railway. The age of steel, electricity, and heavy engineering began in the United States in 1875 with the opening of the Carnegie Bessemer steel plant in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The age of oil, the automobile, and mass production began in the United States in 1908 with the production of the first Ford Model T in Detroit, Michigan. 
the age of information and telecommunications began in the United States in 1971 with an announcement of the Intel microprocessor in Santa Clara, California. So Perez's argument was that the four technological revolutions that preceded the age of information and the telecommunications followed a similar cycle. So there are four phases. Phase one is early new products and industries, explosive growth and fast innovations. Phase two, full constellation, new industries, technology systems and infrastructure. Phase three, full expansion of innovation and market potential. And last phase four, last new products and industries, earlier ones approaching maturity and market saturation. So, in real life, the trajectory is of a technological revolution is not as smooth and continuous as the stylized curve presented in figure 3.1. The process of insulation of each new techno-economic paradigm in society begins with a battle against the power of the old, which is ingrained in the established production structure and embedded in the socio-cultural environment and in an institutional framework. Only when the battle has been practically won can the paradigm really diffuse across the whole economy of the core nations and later across the world. In very broad terms, each surge goes through two periods of a very different nature, each lasting about three decades. As shown in the figure, the first half can be termed the insulation period. It is this time when the new technologies erupt in a maturing economy and advance like a bulldozer disrupting the established fabric and articulating new industrial networks, setting up new infrastructures and spreading new and superior ways of doing things. At the beginning of that period, the revolution is a small fact and a big promise. At the end, the new paradigm is a significant force, having overcome the resistance of the old paradigm and being ready to serve as a propeller of widespread growth. The second half is the deployment period when the fabric of the whole economy is rewoven and reshaped by the modernizing power of the triumphant paradigm, which then becomes normal best practice, enabling the full unfolding of its wealth generating potential. So, what made Perez's observation so trenchant in 2002 is the part in the middle, the turning point. The post-dot-com era, while the insulation period begins with the eruption as new technology emerges in pursuit of real-world applications, it eventually transitions into a full-blown frenzy as speculative capital pursues increasingly fantastical commercial applications. So the financial frenzy is a powerful force in propagating the technological revolution, in particular its infrastructure and enhancing, even exaggerating the superiority of the new products, industries and generic technologies. The ostentation of success pushes the logic of the new paradigm to the fore and makes it into the contemporary ideal of vitality and dynamism. It also contributes to the institutional change, at least concerning the destruction half of creative destruction. At the same time, as mentioned before, all this excitement divides society, widening the gap between rich and poor and making it less and less tenable in social terms. The economy also becomes unsustainable due to the appearance of two growing imbalances. One is the mismatch between the profile of demand and that of the potential supply. The very process by which intense investment was made possible by concentrating income at the upper end of the spectrum, 
becomes an obstacle for the expansion of production of any particular product and for the attainment of full economies of scale. The other is the rift between paper values and real values. So the system is structurally unstable and cannot grow indefinitely along that path. With the collapse comes recession, sometimes depression, bringing financial capital back to reality. This together with mounting social pressure creates conditions for institutional restructuring. In this atmosphere of urgency, many of the social innovations, which gradually emerged during the period of insulation, are likely to be brought together with new regulation in the financial and other spheres to create a favorable context for recoupling and full unfolding of the growth potential. This crucial recomposition happens at the turning point which leaves behind the turbulent times of insulation and paradigm transition to enter the golden age that can follow depending on the institutional and social choices made. This certainly seems to describe the dot-com bubble, which not only destructive to speculators directly, but the economy broadly, even as its excesses, particularly in terms of broadband buildup, funded that uh, infrastructure that would fuel the internet over the next two decades. And by extension, those two decades would seem to be the golden age of the deployment period. That certainly seems to be the case with technological dispersion. Today, over 4 billion people have access to the internet. And thanks to the global nature of the web, those in developing countries can consume and create on the same platforms as most well off. Moreover, the capital part of Perez's theory seems to fit as well. Some of the best returns over the last 15 years have been in established public companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Production capital in Perez's nomenclature, venture capital, meanwhile, which is theoretically speculative financial capital, has increasingly become professionalized and standardized, thanks in part to the rise of cloud platforms like AWS, building a new SaaS company to take on another old world vertically uh, certainly takes hard work, but the playbook is fairly well known. So this was my thinking behind 2020's The End of Beginning. I wasn't thinking of Perez when I wrote that, to be honest. Even though I reached for the automobile example, it just seemed clear to me that the post.com bubble era had reached its natural endpoint as far as market structure was concerned. Whatever came next would look significantly different. But Perez disagrees. So the imminent golden age, while the introduction to the technological revolutions and financial capital makes the case that the dot-com bubble was the turning point, Perez now thinks we are still waiting for the golden age and that there may be another crash in the future. Perez now includes the Great Recession as part of the new current revolution's turning point. JN tweets, feels to me like the economy is near maturity and therefore quietly preparing for another big bang of technological revolution. Carlotta's Perez framework would suggest that we are likely to see a frenzy ensue before we see a turning point crash as well as re-regulation. Carlotta Perez tweets back saying, I respect your view. Theories belong to the public, but I see the present as the 1930s, the turning point of the IT surge. We have had two frenzies and we have not yet had a golden age. The power of AI, IoT, 3D, robots, blockchain is there to be shaped. So Perez links to the Financial Times and the pertinent part starts here. 
The important thing is that the previous revolutions had the golden age after the recession that follows the crash. And we could now perhaps have a global sustainable golden age. I think it is perfectly possible with the current technologies. What would be necessary to bring that golden age about? How do we need to tilt the playing field to make that happen? Well, tilt the playing field is the word. The first thing we have to understand is that every golden age has had to do with social, political choices made by the governments because capitalism really only becomes legitimate when the greed of some is for the benefit of the many. I think in order to tell you what needs to happen next time, I have to give you an example from the past because otherwise we don't learn anything from history and that's why it's important to understand how revolutions happened before. The mass production revolution bought the post-war boom. Now, what happened then? If we look at the 1930s, we have some similarities with today. We see xenophobia. We see a lot of people angry and following at the time of fascism and commu communism. Now, all sorts of extremisms, right and left, leaders that really offer heaven, even though they cannot deliver. But the whole thing is that people are angry and disappointed. But you also have something else which is very important, which is that there is an enormous technological potential which is not being used. Not enough investment is going in the possible innovations because there is not enough demand. And demand is normally created by some policies, but it has to be policies that are adequate for that particular revolution. So what was the previous revolution? It was about mass production. So what was the direction in which it was tilted? Well, First of all, it was the world war and the world war. It was obvious that producing a lot of weapons made a lot of good business sense. They became cheaper and better and so on. But then at the end of the war, governments did something very important. They created a set of policies that favored suburbanization before the automobile, you had railways. So you only had stations and the land in between was very cheap. It had no way of being being used. But once you have the automobile, you can build cheap mass-produced houses to put lots of electrical appliances inside and the car at the door. And at the same time, governments made the welfare state so that workers could buy those houses. So you have home ownership and consumerism. That's one of the directions. And the other direction was the Cold War, of course, so that you had innovation going in the two directions. If we had stayed in what was visible in the 30s, it was very difficult to imagine this golden age that came after the war. The same thing is happening to us now. In order to get the technologies to go in the right direction, you've got to tilt the playing field. And I hold that the most effective way of doing that today is tilting it towards green. So Perez's view on how focus on green policies could fuel a golden age are well fleshed out in papers like a smart green European way of life, the path for growth, jobs and well-being. One insight that I find very compelling is that the demand that drives job growth is less about the technology itself and more about the new lifestyle that the technology enables. So here in quotes regarding recovery in the 1930s, one cannot look at the USA alone. In Germany, with Hitler's rise to power, the institutional framework was reoriented to facilitate the development of mass production. The war economy that began after 1933 in Germany could be seen as a synergy phase of a sort. Fortunately, the Nazis failed to conquer Europe and lost the war. Otherwise, National Socialist Germany might have been the center of a longer lasting fascist world. 
At the same time, the Soviet economy too was developing very fast with another mode of growth that was also capable of intensively deploying mass production. This wide range of four options for the deployment of that particular paradigm, including the Keynesian uh, democracies that will have the USA at their core is an indication of how much is at stake and how much it is decided about the future of each country and the world at the turning point of each surge. So there you guys have it. This article is quite long, but if you want to take a look more about it, the death and birth of technological revolutions, take a look at the description below and hit the link. Let me know what you think about this article and comment down below if you think that the cryptocurrency technological revolution is going to follow suit like the others in the past. All right, let's keep on going. Coinbase announces NFT waitlist following lead of rivals Binance and FTX. So two points in this article. Number one, the crypto exchange announced Tuesday the release of its waitlist for the Coinbase NFT. And two, to start, it will offer users the ability to mint, purchase, and showcase their NFTs. Coinbase is breaking into the market. And if we take a look, uh, the market for non-fungible tokens announcing today, Tuesday, the waitlist for choose access to Coinbase NFT, making it the latest crypto firm to dive into the speculative frenzy. The new offering, which is being spearheaded by Coinbase VP of product, Sanchan Sagzena will allow users to mint, purchase, and showcase NFTs. To start, it will support Ethereum-based NFTs, but it has plans to expand to other chains after it launches. So our ambition with the Coinbase NFT is to allow everyone to benefit from their creative spark, to contribute to a future where the creator economy isn't a small subset of the real economy, but a central driver. Coinbase said in marketing materials, According to a spokeswoman, the platform will utilize self-custody wallets and as a result will not require users to go through KYC checks with the exchange in the same way that its brokerage clients need to in order to trade crypto. The firm would not disclose fees, but plans to share those details closer to the official launch of the platform. NFTs have become the side guests of the crypto market with headline making NFTs like Beeple selling for tens of millions of dollars. That excitement has cooled recently with weekly NFT trade volumes coming down significantly from their peak. Data from the block shows. Competition is heating up. Coinbase is throwing its hat into a ring that's growing more competitive. Crypto exchange FTX.us announced on Monday the fully fledged launch of its marketplace for Solana based NFTs, as the block reported. Binance also has its own offering named Binance NFT, which the firm aims to build into the largest NFT trading platform in the world. It makes sense that exchanges want a piece of the non fungible action. OpenSea, which clinched unicorn status in a recent funding round, has seen its volume surge as users have flocked to its platform to flip CryptoPunks and Pudgy Penguins. Data from the block shows OpenSea saw more than $2.7 billion in NFT trading volumes last month. While that's a fraction of the $129 billion Coinbase saw in crypto spot trading in September, OpenSea's volumes have increased more than 30 times. FTX.US Brett Harrison thinks that the NFT marketplace will have a meaningful impact to the firm's bottom line. 
We think it will make a meaningful impact on our bottom line over time as volume picks up on FTX.us and in Solana NFTs in general. And especially when we add support for Ethereum's NFTs, he said in the message to the block. So what do you guys think about this? Coinbase announces NFT waitlist falling lead of rivals Binance and FTX. Comment down below and let me know if you have used Coinbase and if you are planning to use the NFTs within their uh, exchange and their platform. All right, let's take a look at article three. This unexpected factor can take Bitcoin to $500,000 next year. So 2021 has been a year of crashes for Bitcoin, leaving even experts unsure as to what the king coin might decide to do next. As 2022 inches closer, investment expert Anthony Pompliano spoke to the Bitcoin stock-to-flow model creator Plan B. They discussed Bitcoin prices, whether the market would turn bearish, and Plan B's personal uh, strategies for analyzing Bitcoin. So the price prediction is, after Bitcoin's recent crash due to China FUD, it was only natural for Pompliano to check in with Plan B about his Bitcoin price prediction. Plan B said, quote, so I guess we will be above $100,000, above $135,000 at the end of the year, and then we'll continue to grow. Maybe towards the stock-to-flow model targets $288,000 or even above. I would not be surprised even to see in Q1 or Q2 next year, prices of $300,000, $500,000. I have a feeling about how this chart will look like EOY, end of year. He suggests some of these later price spikes would be due to FOMO transactions. Moreover, Plan B admitted he was a full bull, but that was he was quite sure of switching from bull to bear in the future. However, he claimed that he wasn't ready to formally disclose this change in case he triggered a bear market. Ultimately, he concluded, quote, I do think there will be a crash and it could be as large as the crashes we've seen in the past. We have had three crashes of 80%. And I see no reason why we couldn't have another one. So what are the other indicators? When Pompliano asked Plan B about how news impacted the S2F model, pseudonymous expert admitted he kept track of important news developments. This was because he felt regulatory decisions also affected Bitcoin's price. However, Plan B clarified that news events were not part of the S2F model. He also made it clear that he doesn't read CNN, Bloomberg, or the Wall Street Journal when it came to Bitcoin coverage. Plan B explained, quote, I really do think that we have at least one more cycle to go in the stock to flow prediction. So yeah, that would bring Bitcoin in the $1 million to $5 million range, and I really do believe that we're getting there. Even so, the analysts warned viewers that the S2F model would lose its accuracy after the next halving. So a four-year cycle or not? Plan B confirmed that he believed in the Bitcoin four-year cycle, exponential highs, correction, accumulation, and continuation. However, not all experts are on the same page. For his part, Bitcoin on-chain analyst Willy Wu had admitted in the What Bitcoin Did podcast that the bit thought Bitcoin was maturing. Furthermore, Wu had also stated, quote, the cycle is not a cycle in my reckoning. So what do you guys think about this unexpected factor can take Bitcoin to $500,000 next year? Comment down below and let me know if you think about the stock to flow model and if you actually agree with it or not. 
All right. Before we move on to round two of the articles, I just want to say thank you so much for all my supporters. Please check me out on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It does help me out greatly. And if you're in the YouTube space, please like, share, and subscribe. If you have any friends or family members that want unbiased crypto news or updates, please direct them my way. Dave's Daily Crypto Take, because all of the news that I give will be for crypto and against crypto. So I want you to make your own decision and do your own research about it. So again, thank you so much for all your help and your support. Let's get back into it. Article number four. Almost 40% of all SHIB tokens are now in public hands. Following an impressive run, Shiba Inu is currently trading in the red on Tuesday, October 12th. Although the new weekly session began in the green, interestingly, according to the verified token supply information by CoinMarketCap, the asset, which is known for its enormous total supply, has 39.47% of all SHIB tokens trading in the public hands, indicating that almost 40% of the total number of coins circulating in the market is in the public's ownership. Notably, at the time of writing, there are 394 trillion SHIB in circulating supply out of 1 trillion or 1 million trillion total supply, which equates to 39.47% of the total supply. It's worth noting that the circulating supply refers to the total number of coins in circulation, and in public ownership, it's comparable to the stock market's flowing shares. On the other hand, the total supply is the number of coins that have already been generated, minus any coins that have been burned, and it's equivalent to the number of outstanding shares on the stock market. Sure, the SHIB price, currently Shiba Inu, is trading at 0.00002865 down 2.74% in 24 hours and up a staggering 61.96% in the last week with a market capitalization of $11.3 billion. Recently, Shiba Inu has seen a remarkable rise in value with a decentralized meme token, initially soaring when it was listed on Coinbase on September 16 with 870 million dollars being invested in Shiba Inu in only 24 hours. Likewise, following the recent surge in popularity, the Shiba Inu Twitter account announced on October 6, 2021, that it had surpassed the 1 million followers milestone. It tweeted, thank you, Shiba Army, for helping us reach yet another milestone in our history. Today, we reached 1 million followers on Twitter. So Shiba Inu retail demand. Interestingly, small-scale retail investors seem to have been attracted to the project by the low cost of participation. As early as September 9, 2021, investors had the opportunity to become SHIB millionaires for as little as $7, with $1 purchasing 146 coins for 146,000 coins of the crypto at the time. Owing to the increasing retail interest such as that seen on Twitter, it was announced on Tuesday that a petition for Robinhood to list Shiba has now reached over 228,000 signatures. Eventually, after taking into account the growing demand for the asset, another exchange, Bitpanda, announced on October 8th that it listed the token created in August 2020 by Ryoshi, whose identity remains shrouded in mystery. So what do you guys think about this? Almost 40% of all Sheep tokens are now in public hands. Comment down below and let me know if you hold any SHIB tokens and if you plan to buy any in the near future.
All right, let's take a look at our main topic today. It is called, if you invested $100 in Bitcoin in 2011, this is how much you'd have now. So three main points in this article. Number one, the early days of buying Bitcoins were very different from today. Two, Bitcoins are not being used very much for transactions as originally intended. And three, prices could be headed higher as demand outstrips supply. So in early 2011, the then obscure cryptocurrency Bitcoin reached $1 per coin for the first time. It was a milestone celebrated by the few crypto enthusiasts around back then. The rest of the world was either oblivious or left scratching their heads about what Bitcoin even was. Everyone has heard of Bitcoin now. As of this writing, the price per coin is more than $57,000, representing a total market capitalization of almost $1.1 trillion, according to CoinMarketCap. Therefore, owning 100 Bitcoins at a mere $100 investment in early 2011 could be worth an eye-popping $5.7 million today. Of course, this hypothetical windfall ignores a very important point. You probably couldn't have invested $100 in Bitcoin back then, at least not as easily as you can today. Here's why, why it matters, and what it might mean for the price of Bitcoin in the future. Why it was hard to buy Bitcoin in 2011. Bitcoin was created in 2009. If you want to own Bitcoin today, you can simply deposit money into an app like Coinbase, Square, or Robinhood and click buy. But back in the early days, there weren't reliable third-party methods of exchanging dollars or coins. Bitcoin market was an early attempt at a cryptocurrency exchange. It used PayPal as a way to exchange money, but PayPal eventually stopped authorizing transactions on Bitcoin market due to allegations of fraud. Bitcoin market and other exchanges were unreliable, making it hard to invest $100 in Bitcoin in 2011. Chances are, if you owned Bitcoin in the early days, you obtained it by mining it yourself. Either that or you were a restaurant in Jacksonville, Florida, where a customer bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoins in 2010. Bitcoin wasn't meant to be an investment. The struggle to convert dollars to Bitcoins is in the early days is a reminder that Bitcoin wasn't necessarily designed as something to invest in, hoping its value would increase. Bitcoin was built to be a digital currency used for buying and selling goods and services. We may joke that these two pizzas cost staggering $500 million in today's prices, but buying pizza was, in fact, precisely how Bitcoin was intended to be used. Although Bitcoin was designed to serve as money, critics point out that Bitcoin would struggle to handle the world's financial transactions. Consider that there are relatively few transactions on Bitcoin's blockchain compared to the global financial system, with its current infrastructure, Bitcoin is prone to bogging down and, as a result, transaction fees spike outrageously high from time to time. Bitcoin is due for an upgrade called Taproot, which should help alleviate its scalability bottleneck. But I believe the more important point is that Bitcoin isn't being used as intended. People aren't buying and selling with Bitcoin so much as they're holding Bitcoin. For example, consider cryptocurrency mining companies. Two of the biggest are Marathon Digital Holdings and Riot Blockchain. Marathon Digital and Riot Blockchain have mined 2,098 and 2,457 Bitcoins, respectively, so far in 2021. Neither company has sold any, meaning Marathon Digital now has 7,035 coins, while Riot Blockchain has 3,534. Many investors are doing exactly the same thing. They're buying Bitcoins and holding on to them. 
expecting they'll increase in value over time. So what this means for Bitcoin prices, to me, a conversation about cryptocurrency always come back to supply and demand. Consider that mining is the process of unlocking new Bitcoins and releasing them into the overall supply. However, because miners are mostly holding, the supply available for trading isn't increasing as it otherwise would. And investors are holding Bitcoins instead of spending them. And this is having the same effect of reducing Bitcoin's float. Therefore, Bitcoin supply is constricting, but demand appears to be growing. This demand isn't just coming from investors, companies, and world governments are buyers as well. MicroStrategy is a business intelligence software company that holds more than 100,000 Bitcoins. But companies like Latin America's e-commerce and payments giant Mercado Libre have quietly added Bitcoins to the balance sheet as well in recent months. El Salvador, meanwhile, recently made Bitcoin legal tender alongside the U.S. dollar. But to make this monumental change, El Salvador's central government bought Bitcoins. By holding Bitcoin, it hopes to reduce the coin's volatility for local merchants. Brazil's legislator is slated to hold a vote to make Bitcoin legal tender as well. Like El Salvador, would Brazil buy and hold Bitcoins to reduce volatility risks for businesses? Time will tell. In short, Bitcoin is largely being held instead of spent, and this constrains supply. Meanwhile, demand from investors, companies, and governments is growing. If this continues, it won't be surprising to see the price of Bitcoin head higher in 2021 and beyond. So there you guys have it. What do you guys think about this? If you invested $100 in Bitcoin in 2011, this is how much you'd have now, $5.7 million. Wow. So uh, let me know what you guys think about this article and let me know if you actually knew about Bitcoin back in 2011. All right, let's take a look at the prices one last time before we head out. At number one, BTC, $56,292. Ethereum, $3,518. Binance Coin, $455. Cardano, $2.14. Tether, $0.99. Cents. XRP, $1.11. Solana, $153. Polkadot, $35. USD coin, 99 cents. And last, Dogecoin, 22 cents. So thank you so much for making it this far into the podcast and YouTube video again, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dave's Daily Crypto Take. Again, catch me on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you're in YouTube space, please like, share, and subscribe. Other than that, please have a very wonderful crypto day. And I'll guys see you in the next one. Peace.